Welcome to Stone's Notes by Stone Consulting. I'm Maureen Stonehouse. On today's episode, I'm talking to Andre Kaladic, geologist at ConocoPhillips. We'll be talking about Andre and Bill Arnott's scientific article titled, Shore Face to Shallow Shelf in Estuarine and Size Valley Deposits of the Lower Cretaceous Glauconitic Sandstone in the Jenner Upper Manville E Pool, Southeastern Alberta. Some highlights include detailed species analysis from within the pool. We're rocking out today with Andre. Welcome to Stone's Notes. Okay, hi Andre and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. Hi Maureen, thanks uh, for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. So you did a study on the Jenner Manville E pool which was discovered in 1963 and is currently producing oil and gas from the glauconitic sandstones. Can you give us an overview of the pool? The pool was discovered in 63. For about four decades, it was essentially owned and operated by Gulf Canada. Yeah, it was a lot of, you know, vertical wells, conventional um, production, completion and production techniques. Um, It was on, I believe it was on water flood fairly early in its life a lot of produced water and a lot of water reinjection. When I wrote this paper uh, back in 2004, from 1964 when it first came on production, there were 39 wells in the pool. In 2004, 21 were producing and they had five um, injectors. And at that point, back in 04, they had to date produced uh, 28.6 million barrels and the regulator, the AER, at the time they estimated the remaining reserves were just under a million barrels, maybe seven or 800,000 barrels remaining. So not a lot left. So from 04 to today, I actually recently kind of poked around. In 2004, they actually only drilled three more wells. So there's 42 wells in the pool now. The uh, cumulative oil uh, produced is now 8.1 million barrels. So it's actually almost exactly what um, back in 04, the AER thought the remaining reserves would be. So they produced about seven, 800,000 barrels since um, 2004. And to go with that, there's been about 8.9 BCF of gas produced. Yeah, so I kind of looked at the production profile and from, uh, you know, the last 15 years or so, it's been pretty flat, even with only three additional wells drilled in that time. It kind of fluctuated between about 100, 100, you know, 75 to 100 barrels a day for the pool. And as of May, the last production date, it was producing 75 barrels a day. So near the end of its life. But um, yeah, it was a a good uh, property for golf for a long time. Yeah, it's always fascinating to go back and see the predictions and how well they match up with what's actually happened. So whoever did the decline analysis on this should be proud of their work. Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting history, and uh, it was kind of neat to go back and look at it again. Gulf, um, which became ConocoPhillips Canada, they were purchased by Conoco. They actually uh, sold the pool along with a number of other assets that they had in southern Alberta at the time. Because I remember right when I was finishing up school, um, another company called Sequel they picked up, I believe, most of the pool and started operating it. And they may have been the operator that drilled one or two of the additional wells. And then again, recently, just checking the history real quick. Right now, it's it's a company I had never heard of before called COR, the number four, and then oil. There was a few other companies involved because some of the wellheads had um, Penwest, I noticed. 
they actually they they were experimenting with some horizontal wells um, in uh, the early part of the 2010s. And actually, in March of this year, this core for oil, who now operates the pool, they just uh, rig released um, a couple of horizontal locations in the north end of the pool. So they might think there's um, some extra life and some um, some unswept reserves that are now they they think they're able to unlock with the horizontal technologies. Yeah, it'll be neat to see how those horizontals turn out from Penn West that you mentioned there. I know a lot of companies are starting to put horizontals in the water floods to get the resource on the edges of the pool. This is a narrow pool. It's about one section wide and one township long. What do you think differentiates it from the glauconitic sandstone surrounding it? And what makes this area so unique for the Pool E? I guess the main differentiator is basically there's a massive trending feature and a huge pool, a field. There's a glauconitic oil field just east of E-Pool. And it's like townships in extent. And that so that's the Jenner field. That's the Jenner Glock oil, oil field. It, its discovery, you know, um, predated the E-Pool's discovery by, I think, about 10 years. I think it was a mid to late 50s discovery, this Jenner E-Pool. And it's just a, a, a huge arc. Like on the map, you see where all the wells were drilled. It's like this huge arcuate feature. Yeah, it was known for a long time, but there were kind of conflicting ideas, especially at the time of its discovery about like the depositional interpretation. So they hadn't kind of linked everything across the basin, so to speak, back then. So some of the early workers thought like it might have been a giant barrier island um, complex of some sort. And then I think other workers thought it was some kind of like incised valley system. And I've, I remember reading about a few other ideas. E-Pool is, um, it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's time equivalent and there is, you know, a linkage there environmentally, depositionally, but it's distinct from that feature, mainly in in the scale of it, right? Like, like you say, it's um, a couple of sections wide and about a township long. So, you know, if there is a linkage, this might be like an offshoot, like a tributary or a distributary link to the bigger Jenner trend. There are other pools like ePool in that area. From my, you know, my reconnaissance work, looking around the pool at other areas, I don't really remember seeing one this this preserved or this extensive in terms of like the offshoots from the main Jenner trend. Like you'd see basically single section, a lot of single section pools for these tiny little Glock, um, you know, oil, oil pockets, oil accumulations, or they might be a couple of two, three sections in extent. The preservation makes it a little bit unique. Not, not a lot of the smaller, um, the smaller features may be related to the bigger Jenner trend or as preserved as this one. Essentially, you know, the, the geological story is this was during a time when like the encroaching boreal sea, um, it was basically retreating and going back north. And it kind of paused like in central Alberta. And there was a series of feeder channel systems that were dumping sediment into large shore face complexes in central Alberta. The most probably well-known one is the Hoadley Barrier Complex, kind of in the, I think it's in the Red Deer, sort of the Red Deer area. So this e-pool is, is, overall, it's interpreted to be, you know, a small snapshot of, a, you know, an interconnected network or system of, of drainage channels or systems, essentially, that are feeding sediment north and uh, most of it accumulating at Hoadley and uh, the Drayton, Val- Drayton Valley Shoreflakes complex is another one. That why, that's why e stands out a little bit and is somewhat unique. 
Yeah, it's interesting your interpretation of it potentially being a tributary channel. And I'm sure what you saw in the core aligns with this. In the paper, you divided it into three different faces um, based on three different cores in the pool. So you mentioned that faces one was sitting at the bottom and it was a prograding short face to shallow shell. Faces two was in the middle as an upper estuary channel fill. And faces three was at the top as a tidally influenced abandoned channel fill and interchannel. So what did you see as the distinguishing features of each of these faces? Um, so those three groupings, they were um, facies associations. Three of them were comprised of a number of different individual facies. What you said is the important part. Like you can group them into three main associations and they have common characteristics within each of them, right? In geologic order, the uh, the oldest one, the lowest one in the succession is, you know, that I, I just call it facies association one. And it is that, you know, shallow shelf to prograding shore face system that you talked about. So essentially, this is before the onset of of widespread regression of that of that boreal seaway paleo shoreline. It was at very near or even beyond the the location of the e-pool in southeast Alberta. Uh, We were in full on marine conditions at that time. Um, but it was shallow. It wasn't, you know, we're not talking hundreds of meters of water depth. We're, we're talking about a shallow shelf, a few, you know, tens of meters of water depth kind of thing. Right. So as a result, the profile of the sedimentary succession, you know, periodic storm deposition and or storm reworking of sediments and a lot of features of, of in, increased um, wave swell and wave orbitals disturbing the, the sea floor, the sea bottom. So hummocky cross stratification in kind of coarse silt to fine grain sand, that kind of thing. And then uh, during more quiescent periods, I guess you get, you know, a lot of the fine silts kind of settling out. And then a lot of, you know, bioturbation and disturbance by organisms that would then go in and just colonize and, and eat up all the nutrients on the on the sea bottom there. So it was neat, like looking at that part of the succession, you got a you got a pretty good mix of like cool sort of open marine sedimentary structures, but a lot of bioturbation and a lot of a lot of different critters producing different types of traces because it was pretty good conditions. Like it wasn't stressed. I mean the odd storm would come in and wipe them out, but there was a lot going on. So it was neat. Like I got to brush out brush off the uh ecology textbook and and try to identify the different traces in the core and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, that was like the lower uh, FA1, phase association one, kind of the shore face to shallow shelf. And then above that, the story is, I kind of alluded to it before when I said, yeah, the boreal seaway, overall it's regressing back, it's going north, but it, it's fluctuating. So there's some back and forth, right? What the contact between phase association one and FA2 above it represents is basically an unconformity. So we had, you know, kind of retreat of the paleo shoreline north. And then we basically started incising this exposed shelf and digging valleys and, and, and streamways and rivers and things into it. Right. So we had like an exposed firm ground. Like if, if you go out to Fino on Vancouver Island and you go out at low tide, you can kind of walk on, you know, the sandy to muddy flats. And it's sort of soupy, but it's sort of consistent. Like if you kind of bend down and stick your finger in it, it, uh, it makes a little, it makes an impression. It makes a little hole, right? Uh, and then the, wa- the water washes over it. So that's what I envisioned what it was like after the seaway retreated. You kind of expose the shelf, right? 
So what happened was you got a lot of erosion, valleys were forming, sediment was bypassing and making its way to the shoreline and to those barrier bars at Hoadley in central Alberta. What happened was um, some critters, opportunistic um, organisms, they actually, they like that firm ground substrate and they start digging into it. And then they filter feed uh, on the uh, on the nutrients in the waters that kind of rush over it. If that's the specific type of trace fossil... Um, Glossopangites. Yeah, the Glossopangites, uh, facies association or whatever. So you see that in the core. So you'll have that shore face um, succession. There'll be a sharp, erosive or undulatory contact. And then FA2 overlies it. But at the interface, digging down into... The FA1 sediments are these typically unlined, like coarse-filled uh, burrows of that glossopangite surface. People have different opinions about that if, when you're talking about sequence stratigraphy, but some people say, well, uh, well, that indicates it's a sequence boundary, and that means we've had like a full cycle of high stand followed by a regression, and then we had exposure of a shelf, and then later on we had another transgression, and then we're we're backfilling that system, and then you're you're actually you're piping coarser sediment into those burrows, those tubes that the, the critters made or whatever. So it was neat because I actually saw that. You see these unlined burrows into the finer grain sediment and the fill is coarser than the surrounding matrix. And that's a hallmark of glossopangite. So I was like, cool, okay, this is starting to make sense. And then, okay, so over top of all that, then is facies association two. And those are the estuary, the, uh, well, fluvial to estuarine, basically channel sediments. So we, yeah, like we exposed the shelf, we cut the valleys, we transgressed and we created kind of an estuarine, maybe embayment type environment. But then sediment coming from the south, it kept infilling the valleys. And basically it's, it's pushing, it's, I think that's what they call a normal regression. Like sediment is just pushing the, the shoreline north, just as you're filling up, you're filling up basically the uh, container that you created with, with the incision of the valleys, right? The, uh, the target reservoir zone, this FA2 stuff, these fluvial estuarine channels, and they are characterized by, essentially they're made up of three facies. There was a kind of a dune cross stratified medium, sort of medium grain sandstone facies. And that was always like heavily, you know, moderately to heavily oil stained, oil saturated in the core. So that was the, that was the payload right there. Yeah, there was there was kind of like this uh, massive to kind of contorted stuff that I interpreted being like slump blocks, like sloughing in from the edges of channels as like their banks got cut out by the active river. So that would like convolute the bedding and, and all that kind of stuff. So I recognized that quite a bit. I broke it out into a separate facies. And then the other one was these um, coarse, uh, coarse sand matrix uh, chert pebble conglomeratic facies. So you'd have like these imbric imbricated, well-rounded chert pebbles, chert clasts, you know, mixed in with this sort of coarse grained uh, sandstone matrix. And that was kind of interbedded within the sands here and there. Uh, aerially, it was kind of partitioned, like there was more accumulation of that stuff in the north end of the pool than in the south. There was some I saw in the south, but more in the north. So that's FA2, that's like the reservoir. So the, those are what I interpret to be these estuarine channels, like providing sediment um, back to those northern shore faces at Hoadley. Formably over top of that is FA3, Facies Association 3. And that's basically the abandonment of this active like fluvial estuarine channelized system. As the, the shoreline, you know, marched further and further north, 
Um, these systems, like they would evolve, you'd get, you know, channels like spilling their banks and going off in different directions. So eventually the energy and this system kind of turned off uh, transport energy from the, the river system. And then you gradually filled it up with bandage channel fill sediments and then like flood basins as the banks were breached and you'd get all this fine grained silt, mudstone, coal, a lot of rootlets, a lot of carbonaceous debris, and even like full on bedded coal. So some of it like turned into a full on swamp or bog and then like peat accumulated. And then you had not a lot, but there was some bedded coal I saw here and there too, right? Yeah, that was it. And then essentially another system came in the upper, the upper Manville was a whole other like period of like channelization and, and more providing of sediment to, to the north. But uh, that was non-reservoir. It was lithic and they were lithic channels. The feldspars would alter with, um, with, with, flu- with completion fluid actually and, and bung up your, uh, your production. So it actually wasn't a good thing. You didn't want to encounter these all that much when you were looking for the, the glock sand. Those are the three associations, a few different faces within each one, but they kind of, each of them, they uh, represent sort of a different, um, like setting depositional environmental setting. So that's how I, that's how I classified them. It sounds like there's a really good divide too, between facies one with the glossopangiotes and facies two, and then kind of the coolly more muddy stuff with facies three above. So it should be a pretty distinct package for the facies association two to pick out both with the oil staining and then the sedimentary structures that you highlighted there? I remember being a little bit lost when I first started and looking at the core, looking at the logs. I mean, maybe that's sort of a lot of people have that at the beginning of any project, but it's sand on sand, but you, you, you tease it out when you start examining the details and you recognize like the sharp surface separating. Yeah. That gloss, gloss fungi surface separating the shore face from the estuarine channel fill above, but within um, like to get a little more detailed within that FA1, there was actually parasequences stacked one atop the other. And I think that got me a little bit confused because I would see sometimes like an, an easily identifiable, like repetition of coarsening upward profile and then like kind of a beveling off, like a flooding and then another coarsening up. But that wasn't always really, really easily apparent. So I was like, what's going on down there? But then I kind of, I traced it and there were basically two, I think the lower one was more st- storm dominated. There was more HCS, more hummocky cross stratification in the lower parasequence, like sitting right on top of the ostracod limestone, the, the underlying of the unit beneath the Glock. And then above that, there was a more like gradually coarsening upward parasequence, kind of like the offshore to the, maybe the lower shore face or whatever. There was a little bit of like, hummocky stratification there but it was more just sort of a standard progression to the ripple kind of cross laminated stuff in the lower lower shore face and then that was beveled off everywhere by the by the sequence boundary if you want to call it that the glossopharyngitis surface so yeah i remember getting tripped up with that a little bit and then sequences uh or associations two and three above the sequence boundary were a little more straightforward and then it was just like mapping out the different faces within them and where do they sit and what does that mean in terms of like environmentally what was going on back then. Right. So you said that doing the stratigraphic correlation could be difficult. And in your paper here, the core logs show that um, faces association two is two to nine meters thick, depending on which core you're looking at. 
How easy would it be to overlook this two meter package? Easy if you were, okay, really easy if you were doing some kind of a quick study and you had like a really limited suite of um, logs. So for example, like if you just program some kind of algorithm to map from like a gamma ray trace or whatever, you'd have all kinds of problems because yeah, the, the, the sand, the Glock sand, part of the story is the source for those channels that fed those Glock, like fluvial to estuarine systems. I think they originated from the East, like they're from the Craton, from the shield. So they're more, they're actually cleaner. They're more quartzos and kind of chert rich in, in lithology. So as a result, the gamma profile looks really clean. Like there's very little um, like lithic fragments, like feldspar, like stuff that can decay and have the radioactive trace elements that makes it look dirtier or whatever. So this is in contrast to the undifferentiated upper manville that I kind of mentioned already that sits on top of the block. You got a lot of these lithic channels um, also incising and feeding sediment to the north. But the source, the main source of provenance, it's switched, I think, from the eastern cratonic, you know, pathway. It switched, I think, the Cordillera. I think the, maybe the mountains were rising more. There was, like, greater potential for um, the Cordillera to be a source of sediment. And I think more, um, more pathways, more conduits were finding their way into the basin from, from the west, from the Cordillera. What that means is those sources of sediments were higher in lithic fragments and feldspar. So the, the upper man, the undifferentiated upper, upper manville, um, it's sand. Like it can be really, really clean, like clean, you know, sandy channel, channel fill sequences. But the mineralogy of this of the sand grains, it's it's quartz, but it's also more lithic fragments, volcanic fragments, feldspars, and with all the clays and the uh, radioactive stuff, that suppresses the gamma, right? So, um, so the point is, if you were just looking at the Glock, you'd be like, ah, clean quartz of sand, I got it. Part of the problem is there were, like I mentioned, there was some coal. So if you were just looking at the gamma, the gamma profile. You could be fooled if there was a, a one to two meter thick cold bed and you were only you were maybe in an area with a Glock, like where oil saturated sand in the Glock was only two or three or four meters thick. And there was a one or two meter co thick cold bed nearby. I could see you um, mistaking or identifying one for the other or vice versa. You know what I mean? And then the other thing is above um, FA2, more in FA3. You know, you start to get uh, like the fining of the, the fluvial, like the turning off of the energy of the fluvial sequence and more of the fines. Sometimes you get these really indurated, like hard cemented beds and they'd be cemented with um, ciderite or, uh, yeah, it's you know, primarily ciderite. So what is that? Iron carbonate or whatever. But again, the profile on just a gamma curve is like a clean, it looks like, you know, a, a, a clean, it could be a clean anything, right? So again, that not being able to differentiate between that stuff. You had a good point in there too about the mineralogy because that's the one thing that always stands out about the glauconitic sands in the cores. As soon as you look at it, it's that green quartz rich sand because of the glauconite muds, right? So um, it's a good point that the mineralogy really influences the logs there as well, making it easier to di differentiate. So that's a, a great tip there that you had. 
if you have, you know, the logs that gave you indication of um, the, the fluid, like the fluid type, right? So if you ran neutron density curves, you might see some crossover. So that would tip you off right away that, okay, there's, yeah, there's maybe a thin gas cap, there's hydrocarbon here. Um, and then, you know, your resistivity log is going to tell you that. It's not overly difficult, I don't think, but if it was done like as a big, like massive regional study that didn't look at all the different uh, logs, I think um, you could get tripped up and yeah, bypass areas where there could be pay, but it's maybe just thin and it looks like thinner coal or siderite beds or something like that. So speaking of the exploration, um, what made you focus on this particular pool originally? I finished up my undergraduate degree at the University of Alberta in Edmonton and kind of, you know, kicked around a little bit for a while after graduation. And um, I knew, like, I still really loved geology and I kind of knew I wanted to do grad school and go to a master's somewhere. So, I don't know, four or six months after undergrad, I signed up for a master's uh, to study with Bill Arnett at the University of Ottawa in Ontario. And then in the interim, I had, um, you know, been applying for like intern summer student jobs and this kind of thing and got a four month job the summer before I was heading out to Ottawa to uh, start, you know, grad school. So that summer, right before I uh, got an internship or a summer student gig with, um, it was with Golf Canada actually. And that summer, they, that, that was the summer of 2001 where they were bought by ConocoPhillips. But I started with golf, like in May or whenever I started, it was with Golf Canada. And I was actually, um, I was in a Southern Plains, Southern Alberta Plains team but the, the mentor I worked with, um, we were looking at actually um, shallow gas, so Milk River, Medhat, and they ha I had kind of a project like mapping out some, some gas pools and this and that. But another geologist on the team, he was um, like the Cretaceous oil guy, essentially, and he was kind of managing and looking after, you know, a number of pools, but E-Pool was one of them. And they had, um, they had kind of commissioned someone to do a bit of work on it. I remember they had like a like an industry, like confidential paper that they paid a guy to look at some cores and things. And they, they still had some questions and they, they were thinking about like drilling some more infills to kind of like fully sweep the pool. And they kind of mentioned like, oh yeah, this could make, this might make a, an interesting like thesis, an interesting master's project. Like think about it if you're interested, right? So I kind of um, was aware of it doing my shallow gas stuff, but I would go and talk to that geologist who's working that stuff. And I just more and more got into um, uh, the idea of converting it into a full-on master's project. So um, I was kind of sold by the end of the summer. And then when I went to Ottawa, I pitched it to my supervisor, Bill, and he was on board. Um, um, yeah, he, I mean, he had a number of research projects that I could have done too, but he thought this made for a really good, you know, project. Like there was a lot of academic like we talked about sedimentology, stratigraphy stuff going on. Um, it was also kind of a good foot in the door because it was sort of a ConocoPhillips property and they were interested in learning more about it. So they were pitching in, I think, some funding for the masters. So overall, it just sort of evolved and, and, and went that way for me, kind of sort of opportunities coming up and just deciding to go for it. Um, so do you think there is, you mentioned before that there could be other tributary channels out there like this. Do you think there's more pools that are undiscovered or have most of them already been um, explored for? 
Uh, I don't really know. That's a really good question because in honest, in, in honesty, I mean, aside from that big Jenner um, system, that Jenner field that, that we talked about a little bit, I didn't really stray off too further afield from, from ePool itself. I mean, I remember looking, like we talked about, I, I recognized there were single and two and three section pools here and there. Um, so just, you know, recently when I looked at this, some of this stuff again, I just put up a map with all the, with all the wells in that area. And of course, like, you know, you can see ePool, you can see Jenner. Um, and then I, I mean, I can't remember what it looked like 16 years ago, but there was, you know, again, like the smattering of the single to two to three section, you know, accumulations of oil wells, like indicating where the pools were. And it didn't seem to me that, um, you know, they had really discovered many others, you know, in the 15 years since I looked at it back then. So you could say, um, you know, with the with everything that's advanced, technologically speaking, like drilling, like acquiring data, um, seismic, like evaluating reservoirs with downhole tools or whatever, with all those advancements, um, you know, just statistically, if you use them in that area, you you more than likely would uncover something else, right? So I don't know if that means it's just barren. They found everything there was to find, like from 1963 to today or whatever, or it just hasn't been applied for whatever reason, like economics or whatever. It's um, it, Maybe it hasn't been done to the extent it could. So I think uh, like we were talking about with horizontal drilling, there might be there might be some out there. I just don't know. I haven't done enough kind of work to figure out the extent of what the potential might be. Yeah, it would be interesting to see how much 3D seismic there is, because in other areas, the glockinitic channels do pick up really nicely on seismic. So it'd be a great um, tool to check and see, see what's visible on it in the area and what's available for seismic rates. So um, yeah, it'd be neat to kind of follow up with this in another 16 years and see where it's at, right? Mm -hmm. so it's, a it's a really interesting uh, pool and um, interpretation you've had of the feces and the depositional environment and the geology in there. Is there anything else that you'd like to share? Um, I guess nothing really specific, just um, for me, it was, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun. Well, Andre, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today and hearing about your study. So thank you so much for sharing all of that. Oh, well, you're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me. It's been my pleasure. Stone's Notes is brought to you by Stone Consulting. We can be found online at www.stoneconsulting.info or send us an email anytime at stoneconsultingcork at outlook.com. On behalf of everyone here, I'm Maureen Stonehouse. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.